You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, great to see you. Colossians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. It's going to take us just a few minutes to get there this morning. So you'll have to maybe put a thumb there and, and hang tight with us. Um, we're coming to the end of 2010, just in case you didn't know, right? And so it just kind of forms a natural moment in the year to be able to look back at what God has done in and around your life and for us as a church, kind of in and around the life of our church. And so as we finish the month of December, this is month number 16 that Stonegate has been going. And so a year and a quarter or a third, whatever that is. And so we're, we're still just kind of in diapers. I mean, we're, we're all that still, right? We're just barely learning how to walk. And so... When I think back about these, these last 16 months though, God has put His grace on display amongst us. And like, I don't know if you get to see that as clearly as I do sometime, but I, I look at so many of the men, even sitting in this room, and like looking at them now and looking at them 13, 14 months ago, and I barely recognize them back then, you know? I mean, I've just seen God totally grab the heart of so many of our men. I'll tell our ladies this, um, that if I was a woman, it's already a little bit awkward, right? If, if If I was a woman, I would want my husband to be here. Because I think it's just a matter of time before God ambushes them here, right? And so um, when, when I think about the hearts of a lot of our ladies and the heart of our marriages, that all, like, I just look at and think, God, you have been so gracious to us. When I think about the salvations that we've seen in adults and in some of our kids across the room, that I, I just, God has been gracious to us over 16 months. And one of the things, as I think back kind of over the last 16 months, one of the things that, that I'm thankful for as, as a preacher and a pastor is how God has led us and directed the content of what we've preached. And I want you to know that we, we think about these things. It's not just like on Thursday we wake up thinking, well, I wonder what this week, you know? It, it's not that. And so we think about this and we want to be on purpose with what we're trying to preach to you because we want to go somewhere with you. And so I, I want you to know just kind of back behind the scenes what we're trying to do kind of in year one and what we're trying to do this year in year two. That in year one, our emphasis, the emphasis of what we were trying to preach and what we were trying to do is expand your view of the gospel. I mean, this was the concerted attempt at, at all of our preaching and teaching. Now, that doesn't mean that, okay, year two is here, so now we can move on. It doesn't mean that. As soon as we stop preaching the gospel, you need to go find another preacher, right? Okay, so the, the gospel is always going to be preached, but we, we wanted to do it with a specific emphasis. And so when you think about the year, we started with a, a series of sermons through Romans, right? Where we talked about the gospel, what it means to be lost, what it means to be religiously lost, like doing a lot of church sort of things, but just not transformed by the gospel. We talked about what it means to be saved, how the gospel moves us and grows us, how the gospel is connected to the glory of God. So we talked about all that where we're trying to expand your view of the gospel so that you think the gospel, or when you think of the gospel, you think of something great and grand. You have a huge gospel in front of you. You see the, the size of it and how it satisfies all the aches of a human heart. Like if you're in here today and you've got, man, just some, just some aches and some thirst on the bottom levels of your heart, man, I just want you to know that the gospel is the only thing that will satisfy that. Jesus is, is, is the only thing that will do that. It's the only thing that will fix you. 
right? And so we're trying to expand our view of it where we see the promises of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Romans 1 says it's the power of God for salvation, right? So we want our people to know and want you to know the gospel. Who is Jesus? He's fully God, fully human. He's the sent one, the Messiah. What did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life in place of our imperfect one. He died an undeserving death in place of our deserving death. He he was resurrected from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sent the Spirit. And what are we to do? We're to repent and believe. Believing is trusting and treasuring Jesus. It's trusting him with our life, holding up our life and saying, God, I am all yours. And it's treasuring him above all things. And what happens to us when we do that? Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. All of it, wiped clean. The perfect record of Jesus counted for us. We're adopted into the family of God. All the privileges, the resources, all of that that comes with the king, we get now. That that we're sealed in, in the gospel. The Holy Spirit seals us. We're secure. He saves us from not only like the past penalty of sin, but now from the present power of sin in our life. And one day, finally and fully from, from the presence of sin. So, so the gospel is this robust, huge thing. And so we want to expand your view of that. We want you to know that. We want you to see the gospel as something great. And so we started with that series. And then we, we spent the majority of the year in the book of Ephesians. Like some of you were thinking, how much longer can we spend in Ephesians, right? So we spent the majority of the, of the year there, 28, 29 a week, something like that. And here's why we did that. Because in Ephesians, it's three chapters. The first three chapters are, it's, it's basically Paul saying this. Here is the gospel defined. This is what it is. This is what it means. I, I love that picture in, in Ephesians 3, 8, where he calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. Remember that? Where, where the gospel is like this treasure chest that you get your hands in and you start you know, messing with this treasure, pulling this treasure out, all these gold, diamonds, these pearls, these, all of that. You start pulling it out and you realize that all this stuff you're pulling out is just being replenished. That you can never get to the bottom of it. That what you have and what you are in the gospel is an unsearchable treasure for you. And so he spends three chapters defining it for you. And then he spends the, the, the second kind of three chapters, the second half of the book, showing us what it means to live in such a way that we're demonstrating the gospel. Here's the gospel defined, three chapters on this is the gospel demonstrated. So he spends three chapters showing us what it looks like for the gospel to intersect with just the daily grind of our life. What it means for the gospel to intersect with anger. What it means for the gospel to intersect with how we use our money. What it means for the gospel to intersect with our work ethic, with our marriages, with leading our marriages as men and following the joyful leadership of our husband, what all that, it, it, how the gospel intersects with that. And, and so that was all purposeful. We believe the words of the great, great reformer Martin Luther when he said, the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know it, that we can teach it, and that we beat it into one another's heads continually, right? So we hope that year one was you getting the gospel beat into you, right? Okay, so here's year two. So that's year one. It's, it's a continual emphasis, but a specific one for year one. And then in year two, here's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to show how when the gospel gets in you, when it's massaged into your bones, how it starts to move out of us and move us toward mission. The gospel in us starts to flow out of us. It starts to move us to the mission of God, this disciple-making mission that invades both our neighborhoods and the nation's. 
Okay, so this is year two. And now think about this order. You can't miss this. It's gospel first, mission second. It's the gospel that forms us. It it reshapes us. It it recalibrates the, the hopes of our hearts. It makes us and forms us into a missionary. And then the gospel fuels that life of mission. So it's gospel first, then mission. Okay, so, so this is what we've been trying to do over the last several weeks. We've introduced this whole idea in this set of sermons called Gospel Plus Mission. We're just trying to lift up, polish off, and kind of set before you this big biblical reality that when God saves, he sins. That God is a missionary God and he creates and sends a missionary people. Jesus was a sent savior and when he saves, he sends his people. Okay, this, this idea of God is ascending God and he has sent you. Okay, this is what we've been trying to do. So here's what I want to do and then we'll kind of take the last turn in, in Colossians today. I want to spend a few minutes recapping where we've come from and where we've been over the last six or seven weeks. So I, I want to make sure you, 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 you keep hearing this and I want to make sure that you're, you're getting what we're trying to say here. So let me just start at the beginning. We'll kind of work our way in and we'll end today in, in Colossians 4. Okay, so week one, um, this is seven weeks ago now, eight weeks ago, we, we worked through 1 Corinthians 15. And this is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. He's unpacking massive gospel realities, one of those being that the gospel must be preached. It's got to be preached. If people are going to be impacted by the gospel, people have to speak it. And so what we've said there is that people have to be on the mission of God. The saved people of God have to be on the mission of God. And being on the mission of God means that we're speaking the gospel to people. That we're talking about the gospel. Okay, so really what we try to do in week one is just pose the problem. And here was the problem, essentially. Is that the people of God, by and large, are not on the mission of God. That by and large, there has been mission drift that has happened in the church that there's been all of these competing missions creep in and crowd out the central mission of God of making disciples. And so we could bomb away with statistics, but we just try to ask four, three or four questions that kind of show this and reveal this in us. Not like them, but in us. So we ask questions like this. Have you ever had the joyful experience of watching God use your life and your lips for the salvation of someone else, like a neighbor, a coworker, a friend. And it would be completely normal for you to answer no to that question. The, the overwhelming majority of people who walk in and out of a thing like this on a Sunday morning, over 90%, if statistics hold true, would say that, that that's never happened. Okay, so we pressed it one step further. We said, okay, so... In, in the last month, and we're trying to be graceful here, two months, three months, eight months, however many months you want, right? In, in the last month, have, have you had a conversation that's centered around the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus? And we know that, that by and large, if we were to take like a poll in here, it would almost be non-existent. Okay, we press that one step further. Okay, so, so conversation's one thing. When is the last time that you have had somebody that doesn't know Jesus into your home for a meal? Where you're trying to get to know them. See, the problem is not just that we don't speak the gospel. It's that we don't have good relationships with people who don't know Jesus. That, that we don't, I mean, we know names, but we don't know like across the dinner table. I know their story. They know my story. We're in this together. 
We, we don't know people that way. So it's, it becomes really hard to speak the gospel when we don't know people that way. We pressed it one, one step further. Are, are you consistently praying for people who, who are not believers, who, who are not, who don't know Jesus? Do you consistently pray for them? And we ask this question all the time in just our, kind of our process to, to become members of Stonegate. And here's the overwhelming thing that we see in people is that that's non-existent in people's life. And so here's what we're trying to say. It, and by the way, it's okay if that's where you are right now. Here's what we're saying though, that it's not okay for you to stay there. See, okay, when you have the gospel minus mission, I want you to see this. The gospel minus mission equals spiritual obesity. And welcome to the church in America. We're big and we're bloated. And Sunday morning after Sunday morning, we belly up to the buffet, the Sunday morning buffet, and we hoard all the food we can handle, right? And rather, now listen to this, rather than that food fueling us on the mission of God, it turns into fat for us because we're not on the mission of God, right? So, so we become spiritually obese people. Right? I mean, we've got the gospel, but we've walled our life off from the world. We don't have gospel conversation. We're, we're not tracking with God on this disciple-making mission in our neighborhoods, at our workplaces, everywhere we go. Like, that's reserved for, like, the professional people. So, so what we've done is we've become the, the come-and-see place. Like, we think our role now is, is to invite people. And listen, that can be a great thing for all of us in this room. But that is not a substitute for us being a go and tell people. That God has called all of us to be a people who are going and telling, going and speaking the gospel. Okay, so that was the problem that we tried to pose. Week two, we started to work through this idea of a missionary God creating a missionary people. So we, we, we kind of lived in 2 Corinthians 5 that week. And we talked about this missionary God who is reconciling all things to himself, reconciling men and women to himself. He's this missionary God that is running after and is rescuing people. Now, and this was kind of the turn in this passage. When he redeems and reconciles those that he has redeemed, it says he's then entrusts to them. He gives them the ministry and the message of reconciliation. He, he's saying basically that you are now ambassadors, that, that you are now a witness of God, that you are now a missionary. That's what you are. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary of God. And we tried to cut through this missionary myth. And, and the myth goes like this, that a missionary is all about location. So a missionary is a person that leaves here and goes there. A missionary has nothing to do with your location. It has everything to do with what you view as your primary occupation. Has nothing to do with where you're living, but what you're primarily living for. And we're saying this, that when the gospel saves you, when God saves you through the gospel, you adopt, and part of being a child of God is you are now a sent child of God. You are now a missionary. That's identity for you if you're a believer. This is who you are. So we're saying we need to live out of that. And we gave this imagery, and I want to give this to you one more time, of this imagery of, let's say that today God spoke to you and said, you're going to go and you're going to be a missionary to England. You're going to change locations. You're going there. And so let's say that you packed up, you took your family over, and then think about how you would be thinking about life. You're there to get the gospel out. So, so you got to start thinking about, well, like what, I mean, England's kind of big. So where exactly am I going to live in England? Like who, who are going to be the people that I'm going to be primarily going after? 
And then once you decide that, you're going to have to think about this. What sort of a house do I need to live in? What sort of lodging do we need to most effectively carry out that mission? To, to most effectively reach those people? And think about how you would be thinking when you walk in your neighborhood. You would be begging God to send somebody outside the front door as you're walking around your neighborhood so that you can get to know them, right? I mean, your whole thinking is geared around how can I get to know people and get the gospel to them? And here's what we're saying. Wherever your thinking is different, if you were to go there than how it is right now, that is the gospel gap in your life. That is the missional gap that we're trying to close for you. What we're trying to say is God has made you that missionary to England, but the context is right here, is in your neighborhood, in your workplace. The same way you would be thinking there is meant to be applied here. And that's not just for like this elite group of people. That's you. That's me. That's all of us in this room if you're a Christian, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ, that God has made you a missionary. Okay, then week three, we hung out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and, and we looked at a missionary's lips. A missionary's lips. And in 2 Corinthians 4, now I just want to remind you of this. In verses 3 and 4, here's what Paul says. That our condition apart from Christ looks like this. We're perishing. That's our condition if we don't know Jesus. That we are perishing. And, and why are we perishing? He says, because the God of this age, Satan, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Okay, so that's our condition apart from Christ. Verse, that's three and four. Verse six, skip verse five. Verse six says this. Here's the cure for our condition. Is that God shines light in our heart. It's this theological word, regeneration. He makes a dead heart come to life. He takes the blinders off of our eyes where we can see the beauty of who Christ is and the wonder of the gospel. And now for the first time, rather than running from God as rebels, we run to him as sons and daughters. Okay, that's the cure in verse six. Sandwich in between verse three and four and then verse six is verse five. This is the means that God uses to shine light into people. Verse five, Paul says, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. So if we want men and women to be saved, if you want people in your neighborhood to meet Jesus, people in your workplace to meet Jesus, sons and daughters to meet Jesus, it means that we have got to be people who speak the gospel. That we've got to be people who are actively declaring the gospel from our lips. This is the point of Romans chapter 10 in, in verse 13 through kind of 15 where, where Paul says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a universal, anyone who does it, they'll be saved. But then he says this, how are they going to call on him if they haven't believed in him? And how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? And how are they going to hear if no one preaches? What Paul is saying is no one will call upon the name of the Lord unless people preach the gospel. So we've got to be people that get the gospel on our lips. That's what missionaries do. They speak the gospel. And we talked about how for the, for the gospel to come out of our lips, for it to be on our lips, the gospel has to loom large. Jesus has to loom large in our hearts. And we talked about this quote from J.R. Vassar, where he, he asked this question. Why are Christians negligent, hesitant, and reluctant, and even resistant to speak the gospel? And our British friend, Steve Timmis, here was his response back. Because we are not truly madly and deeply besotted. You remember that word from a few weeks ago? Intoxicated, captivated with. We're not besotted with Jesus. I, I love what John Stott said. He said that the greatest hindrance for personal evangelism today is the secret poverty 
of our own spiritual experience. The reason we don't speak the gospel is because Jesus has shrunk and shriveled in our hearts. You and I, we talk about what's big to us. We talk about what looms large in our heart. We can't help but do it. And so we've talked through. A missionary, they get the gospel on their lips. In week four, we talked about how the missionary demonstrates the gospel with their lives. We looked at 1 Peter 2 and 3. I love these chapters. Here's what Paul or Peter basically is telling us. That, that first of all, your lips are instruments for gospel declaration. That's why God has given you a mouth and lips for you can, so you can speak the gospel. Okay, then he says this, that the reason God has given you life so you can live, you can breathe and do all these things, you can work a job, you can get married, all that, is because your life is meant to be a tool, an instrument for gospel demonstration. Okay, that's what your life is meant to do. Your life is, here's what it does for you, is it built a stage for you to stand on to speak the gospel. And either it will validate what you're trying to say or it's gonna make a mockery of it. This is what we're saying, that your life is meant to demand a gospel explanation. When people look at the way you live, it in their mind, it's meant to naturally go to, why do they do that? Why do they forgive like that? Why, why, do they, why do they serve like that? Why do they use their money like that? Why do they parent like that? It's meant, your life is meant to demand a gospel explanation. This is what in 1 Peter 3.15, this is what Peter is assuming will happen. He's assuming that your life will spark questions about the gospel. So, so we're to be people who declare it with our lips, demonstrate it with our life. And then in week five, we looked at this idea from Matthew 28, 16 through 20, this popular verse where we, we try to bring out and highlight the missionary's task. Like what the mission of God is. And we talked through that it's the disciple making mission in our neighborhoods and amongst the nations. That, that Jesus tells us, how do we do it? We go, that's intentionality. You may not get anything else done on Monday, but we are to go and make sure with intentionality, we get done the disciple-making portion of the mission. We're to go, we're to baptize disciples and we're to teach them how to observe all that he's commanded. And then here's what we tried to do in week five. We tried to widen the scope so that you see the mission of God is not just in your neighborhood, but among the nations. And we talked about how Jesus says that he wants to make disciples of all nations. That's this Greek word ethnos, where we get our word ethnicities. And we talked about how it carries this idea of people groups. A people group is a group of people that if you drop the gospel in them, the gospel expands, it it moves until it reaches a natural barrier. Maybe it's linguistic, maybe it's cultural, maybe it's geographical, maybe it's political, but it stops at that barrier. And where the gospel stops, that's a people group. So that group of people, gospel drops in, expands, stops. That's a people group. There's 16,000, over 16,000 people groups that make up the roughly 7 billion people on planet earth. 6,000, 6,000 of those still unreached. 6,000 represents 2.77 billion people. 40% of the world's population, here's what it means to be unreached. It means that there is no identifiable gospel witness in your culture. 
There's not like a Bible translated into that. There's not like churches on the street corner for you to go to learn about Jesus. There's no KLTY playing Chuck Swindoll coming across the radio. None of those things are happening. Little boys and little girls grow up to be men and women who get married, have babies, work a job, grow into grandparents and grandmas and die and never meet a Christian. Never are exposed to Jesus. Never presented with the gospel. No real opportunity to respond to the gospel. 40% of the world's population, and we tried to freak you out and just say this, that maybe God is calling you to make yourself a new neighborhood amongst the unreached nations. I mean, maybe that's you. I mean, maybe that's what God's gonna call your family to do. And we kind of ended that by saying this, the burden of proof lies with you. All that we have, all that's, that's needed there, I mean, the burden of proof lies with us on how we get to justify staying here in this context, right? And so I, I told you that the day I will cry as a pastor is when we have some of our first families say, I think God's calling me to go to the nations, to make new neighborhoods. Okay, so this is where we'll end today. Colossians chapter four. We're gonna take the last step in all this today with this passage. Context of Colossians. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Jesus, that he is ultimately satisfying, that he is big, that he is over all things. So this is what the book of Colossians is about. Right? It's written to a missionary band of followers. Okay, a missionary, kind of a marginalized missionary group of Christians. And, and at the end of the book, in chapter four, Paul is going to give them kind of some parting instructions. If you've got the ESV right above verse two, it's going to say further instructions. This is his parting shot, kind of his last words. Okay, and here's what he's going to tell this missionary band of followers. He says this, continue steadfastly in prayer in verse two. Being watchful, you might circle that word prayer. That's the main commandment, main idea. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it and with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. So the main idea is prayer. The context of prayer is the mission. That God may open a door for the word. And then he goes on to say this, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Okay, so here, here's what I want you to see here. I want you to see this connection. Is the Okay, and this is what Paul, big picture wise, is saying here. That the mission of God is connected to, it's tethered to the prayers of the people of God. Okay, and I want you to hear this. The mission of God of advancing the gospel is tethered to the prayers of the people of God. Okay, I want you to look at this from two angles. Angle number one, the mission of God is propelled and moved forward by prayer. As one pastor said, I love this, prayer is the indirect work of mission. Prayer is what we do for the people on the front lines. It's what we do for the people in the trenches. Prayer is the way we call down like support from the air to bomb in areas that need to be bombed. Prayer is this way that we supplement and reinforce the mission of God moving forward. Prayer really affects things. You praying really affects how the gospel advances in your neighborhood. You praying really affects how the gospel advances in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends. You praying really does matter. This is what Paul's saying, that the mission is propelled forward by prayer. But I want you to see the other side of this, maybe looking at this from the other angle, is that your prayer life, prayer for you, is propelled 
by the mission. I want you to see from both, the, here's the other side of this. That if you're gonna be a man or woman of prayer, then what that means for you is you've got to be a man or woman on mission. If you're not on mission, you'll never pray appropriately. See, I think this is what happens. Anytime you take a setting like this and talk about prayer, here's what instantly happens in most of us, I think. That, that as soon as we start hearing, be devoted to prayer, be watchful in prayer, right? I mean, as soon as we start hearing those sorts of things, here's what naturally happens um, just kind of in our heart is we instantly have this like, oh my gosh, I'm so deficient in this area. I am terrible. Like I'm still in diapers when it comes to praying, right? I mean, we instantly have this sort of a picture, but here's what I think is, is disconnected between or for a lot of us. That we get that we're deficient, but we don't know why we're deficient. We, we don't connect the dots between it's not working like the Bible said it should work and why that is that it's not working. So I want to help you out in that. And one of the people that has been most helpful for me in that has been a guy named John Piper. Now, I want you to listen to what he says about the connection between prayer and mission. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. Here's what he says. In recent years, the key discovery I've made regarding prayer is this. In order to sustain a heart for prayer and a movement of prayer in a church or a city, you have to think and talk about something besides prayer first. In other words, it doesn't work just to say, be devoted to prayer. You've got to talk about other things before you can say that. Okay, he goes on to say, more specifically, there are two prerequisite lessons we must learn. And here's going to be the first one. The first thing I found that I need to think and talk about is war. That life is war. That's not all life is, but it's always that. Now listen to this. Our weakness in prayer is owed largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily, I think about this imagery, a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of, of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Now listen to this statement, key statement. The primary reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is their insistence on trying to take a wartime walkie-talkie and turn it into a domestic intercom, a tool made for tanks and trenches. It won't work when you install it on your yacht or the lake cabin or the third or the second, third or fourth car. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can all call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the, in the world. Okay, do you see what he's saying? That if you want to be a man or woman of prayer, you've got to be in the mission. You've got to be in the trenches. Like there's two ways you can look at prayer. One is wartime walkie-talkie. One is it is the radio pack that when the soldier leaves the comforts of the bunk, he realizes if he doesn't have this, he's done for. If he doesn't have this sort of communication back to headquarters to, to know what to do next, where reinforcements are, are needed, where the next move is, if he doesn't have the ability to call in airstrikes, if he doesn't have that radio pack, he's dead. Okay, that's wartime walkie-talkie. That's prayer in the trenches, in the mission. But our problem is we view it the other way. We view it as the domestic intercom. We, we view prayer as what we do when we're sitting on the couch halfway depressed as we watch the Cowboys or fully depressed as we watch the Cowboys, right? And we realize our bowl of queso is empty. So, so we press the intercom 
and we get our refill of queso to improve our conditions on the couch. See, this is what prayer has become for the church. It's not associated with mission. It's associated with the domestic entertainment, with domestic comforts, with us sitting on the couch and improving our comforts. And until we plant our life and stake our claim squarely in the mission of God, we'll never view prayer as it needs to be viewed. We'll, We'll never see it as what it's really for. We'll always see it as a way to pad our conveniences and improve our comforts as opposed to a necessary line of communication between us and headquarters as the mission of God advances. See, so we've got to see both of these angles, that the mission of God is propelled by prayer and prayer in our life is propelled by the mission of God. Okay, now I want you to see what Paul asked these these people to pray for. Look what he says here in verse 3. He's going to say, pray for the mission. Pray for the advancement of the gospel. Pray for that. Okay, look what he says, verse three. He says, at the same time, pray also for us. So Paul is saying, missionary followers of Jesus, pray for us. Now I want you to see the connection between him saying, pray for us and praying for the mission. What is Paul doing? Paul is on the mission of God. He is a missionary. He is living out of this identity. His life cannot be separated from the mission of God. It cannot. It is synonymous. When you pray for Paul, you are praying for the mission of God to advance. So he is saying, pray for us. Translated, pray that the mission of God would move forward. Pray that the gospel would advance. Pray that God would saturate and fill the world. Pray that the glory of God would be extended to the corners of the globe. Pray for that. Okay, so let me ask you the question. Does your prayer life, does it reflect a heart that is concerned about the mission of God? I Just think about the normal things that you pray for, maybe over the last week, month of your life. I mean, what do you pray for? I mean, what are the things that just continually come up in prayer for you? Because here's what prayer does for all of us. Prayer has a way of spotlighting what is prioritized in our life. And I think what most of our prayers will show us is that we are much more concerned about our conveniences and comforts on the couch than we are about life in the trenches, about life trying to advance the mission of God forward. So so what does it show you there? And, and this is really what I want to just kind of ask you to make a covenant with, with the Stonegate family on for 2011. As we move into this new year, that, that we as a church would pray for the mission of God. That we would pray for that. That we would pray for those people on the front lines. We would pray, pray for the, the, the pastors and preachers in our city that we would pray for the men and women in our home groups that are having gospel conversations, that we would pray for our sons and daughters as we send them to school on the mission of God, that we would consistently be praying for the mission, that our 2011 would be marked by that prayer for the mission. Now look at what he says. He's gonna kind of specify what we pray about the mission. Look at this next thing. He's gonna say, pray for the opening of opportunities. Look at verse three. At the same time, pray also for us. And then look at this next word. Specifically, pray this for the mission. That God may open to us a door for the word. 
That he'll open up opportunities for us. He'll open up ways and means for us to preach the gospel, to get the gospel out. So here's what he's saying. Pray for God to bust open doors for you. Pray that God will bust open opportunities in your neighborhood. Pray that God will bust open opportunities among the nations. Pray for for maybe your neighbor that is hard-hearted, that God would bust down the door of his heart, allowing you to walk through with the gospel. Pray for that coworker that is on the run from God. Pray that God would bust open his heart and allow you to walk through with the gospel. Maybe pray for that hard-hearted family member that has heard the voice of God and like Jonah is on the run. Pray that God would bust through his hard heart and that you would have the opportunity to lovingly and compassionately and clearly say, this is the gospel. This is how it meets the needs of your heart. Pray for those opportunities. Now, I would just encourage you to make that a consistent prayer for you. God, open opportunities for the mission. Will you please do that? Several months ago, I mean, I just started praying this, by the way. Several months ago, I walk into Starbucks. I'm, I'm sitting down, kind of minding my own business, and a guy beside me says, can you help me connect my, com- you know, my computer to the internet? So I help him out, get his computer connected, and we're off and rolling. Small talk, couple minutes. Then he's walking out the door and he's going to put a business card on my little desk stand, that, that thing in Starbucks. And he puts it down and he says, what do you do? And this is that moment as a pastor where I'm just like, man, I want to lie so bad and just say I'm a car salesman, right? <laughs> and so, so I don't lie. I say, you know, I, I'm a pastor of a, you know, of a, of a church here in town. And he says, uh, well, you're probably going to hate me. I'm an atheist. Great introduction, right? I mean, just perfect. And so he, he sits down. We talk for an hour. And like he's talking with enough passion and enough volume where everyone in Starbucks knows exactly what we're talking about, right? Just picture the awkwardness that I'm feeling right now. I'll never forget two girls walk in and they're kind of on the opposite end of Starbucks, kind of sitting in a little place over there. And both of them are just looking at us like this the whole time. I mean, you talk about awkward. It was awkward. And okay, now from that, that's been two months ago. And from that, here's what's happened. Weekly. Now, I'm not kidding. Weekly. This guy's like on a distribution list for I hate Christianity, right? Weekly, he'll send me these emails. He'll forward these things to me. He's writing in all caps. I mean, this is all caps, sarcastic mockery. And it's a weekly email my way. I love it, right? God has opened up a door. I, I pray that God would give me 15 more people that would mock me weekly, right? Now, I pray that for you, that God would give you that. If God would give you that, I wouldn't have to stand up here and tell you to pray because you would instantly see that if you don't pray, you stand no chance. We wouldn't have to get up here and scream at you to read your Bible, You know, if you're involved in the mission of God, if you start having conversations like this, it becomes really intuitive that I better know the Bible. He's asking me questions that I need to find answers for, right? I mean, you don't have to tell a soldier to learn how to shoot his weapon. Just like you don't have to tell a Christian on the mission of God how to read their Bible, right? And so I pray for you that God would open up opportunities like this for you and he would give you conversation like that, people like that, that you would get in the trenches and you would be praying for God to open these great opportunities for you to speak and demonstrate the gospel. And here's just the truth and how God works. 
You can labor in your neighborhood or in your workplace for a decade. And when God sends a missile and busts through a door, more is accomplished in one day than in the previous decade. So we need to be praying for that. So maybe as an application here, that means we need to be praying for our neighborhoods. That you need to pray for your neighbors. That God would give you good relationships. That you would be able to speak the gospel, demonstrate the gospel. That that would happen in your neighborhood. That God would give you opportunity for that. I I love what Ian Bounds, he's become kind of a classic author on prayer. He, He says this, to talk to men for God, that's evangelism. To talk to men for God is a great thing. But to talk to God for men is greater still. That's prayer. To talk to God for men is greater still. And may we be people who talk to God on behalf of our coworkers, of our neighbors, of our family, of our friends, that, that we are those sort of people who are praying for our neighborhoods. And may we be people who are praying for the nations, that, that God would open up opportunities for the gospel to expand in the nations. And I just want to give you a practical resource if you're a family in here. We've got a couple of these out on the resource table for, I think, $20. Or you can buy them on Amazon for right at the same price. It's a book called Operation World. And here's what it's going to do for you. It's going to give you, in a couple of pages, it's going to give you a people group. It's going to list who they are, where they live. It's going to describe them for you, where you could write a description on them, right? And it's going to tell you what kind of prayer points are needed for them, where the gospel is and where it's needing to go. And that would give you a great opportunity to get your family praying for the nations consistently, to maybe make that a dinnertime ritual for you, that we're praying for the nations, that God would open up opportunities in our neighborhoods and among the nations for the gospel to move forward. And then look what else he asked them to pray. For the mission, specifically for open opportunities. And look at this next one. He's going to ask them to pray that that they'll be clear in their gospel declaration. For, for clear gospel declaration. Look at verse three. At the same time, pray also for us, for the mission, that God would open up a door, open up opportunities for the word. And then he says this, to declare, and you might underline the word mystery, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now look at verse four, that I may make it clear. It is the mystery. See what we're trying to do here? We're trying to take a mystery and make a mystery clear. So he's saying that, that I would make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So Paul is saying, we've got this beautiful mystery of the gospel and our job, what we need prayer for and wisdom for and discernment for and the leadership of the Holy Spirit for is to make that mystery clear and compelling and compassionate to people around us. We need help in that. That we need help in speaking the gospel in a contextualized way, in a way that people in our workplace, in our neighborhoods can understand. That we need help in that. We need to pray for that. That God would give us great wisdom on when to speak. That the Spirit would prompt those conversations. He would give us great um, wisdom on, on when to say nothing. Right? That, that God would give us great wisdom in how to communicate this mystery clearly. And look at the end of, of verse 4 there. Last little phrase. He says, how I ought to speak. See, the gospel has created in him an ought See, the gospel has formed in him this, I can't help but do this. Now, I pray that for you, that the gospel would so form you that you would have this angst in you of if I don't get this out, I'm going to die, right? I mean, this is like Acts 4 where Peter and John are arrested. 
They're taken before the authorities and the authorities tell them, you're going to stop preaching or else. Now, or else is not like, I'm going to slap you on the wrist, give you a fine. You're going to go into timeout. Or else is you're dead. And their response back is, then you judge between God and, and this thing. Because we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And I pray that the gospel would loom so large inside of you that that would be the sort of ought that you would feel. That when you talk to people, it would naturally flow into conversation because it looms just so large in you. Okay, so he's saying that we need wisdom. We need prayer in speaking this wisely and compellingly and and clearly. Okay, then he's going to give in verse 2 three ways that we're to pray for these things. Okay, so let's just run through these and, and then we'll wrap it up. Three ways to pray for the mission of God. Look at verse two. He says this, continue in, or continue steadfastly in prayer. This is the first one. How, how do we pray for the mission of God? He's saying, when you're in the trenches, when you're, when your bullets are flying over you, when you're actively involved in moving the mission forward, you're to pray steadfastly, diligently. You're to pray with discipline. That means it's hard work. That means it doesn't just come naturally. That means that it's the grace-dependent work on forming this habit in your life to where it's, maybe you could think of this in two ways, where it's concentrated conversation, where you set aside time to pray to God, to open up your word, to, to read it, and to pray and to listen. Concentrated conversation. And then you've also got this casual conversation where as we are going, as we are recreating, as we are playing, as we are eating, as we are working, as we are parenting, as we're doing all of those things, we're in casual conversation with God. This is what it means to be diligent, to be disciplined, to be devoted, to be steadfast in prayer, that we are praying all the time, that we persevere in prayer. We hold on in the midst of prayer, that we pray and we keep praying and we keep praying for years, for decades, however long it takes, we keep praying. I love these words by J.C. Ryle. He wrote what's become just a classic. It's called A Call to Prayer. And listen to what he says about diligent and persevering prayer. He says, I commend to you the importance of perseverance in prayer. Having once begun the habit, never to give it up. Your heart will sometimes say, you have had family, you know, you have had your family prayers. What might it harm if you leave private prayer undone? Your body will sometimes say, you are unwell or sleepy or weary. You need not pray. Your mind will sometimes say, you have important business to attend to today. Cut short your prayers. Now look at what he says here at the end. Look on all such suggestions as coming directly from Satan. End phrase. They are all as good as saying, neglect your soul. This is what a lack of prayer is. It's a neglect of your soul. It's a neglect of your heart and your affections and your desire for God. When we don't pray, when we're not steadfast in prayer, Troubles on the horizon. Desires are going to diminish for us. So he's saying, devote yourself to prayer. This is how you're to pray for the mission of God. You're to do it consistently, diligently. You're to devote yourself to this thing. I mean, you're to be steadfast in your prayer for the mission. Okay, and then look what he says next, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Then he uses this phrase, being watchful. So we're to pray watchfully. 
We're to be watchful in the way we pray. Okay, so this is saying, be diligent. I mean, you're, you're to do it. You're to be saturated and drenched with it. And this is how you're to be diligent as you do it. I mean, this is how you're to do this thing. So, so think about it maybe this way with this imagery. This is what it means to be watchful. Take two soldiers. Soldier number one, he wakes up 20 seconds before he's to fly out the door, right? So, so he wakes up just in time to grab his uniform. He throws it on. He puts his belt on, misses about three loops, right? Okay, he, he, gets, his, he gets the top on. It's all wrinkled and nasty, he, he grabs his gun. He forgets his ammunition. He runs out the door and he's diligent. He's there. He doesn't miss, but he walks in right on time, right? He is right on time looking like a mess. Take soldier two. Soldier two wakes up 30 minutes before he's supposed to walk out the door. Everything is laid out. His uniform is pressed. His ammunition is laid out. His gun is oiled. He, he puts on his pressed uniform. He latches on his belt, ties his shoe. His eyes are clear. His mind is not messy, right? He grabs his gun, double checks his ammunition. He walks out the door, arrives to report 20 or maybe 10 minutes early. He surveys the land. He does kind of a, a check around, around his post. See, this is what it means to pray watchfully. It means the spirit in which we do it is alert, that we're in tune, that, that there's fervencies, that there's urgency, there's passion with it, that, that we're praying with, with a deep desperation for God to do something, knowing that the enemy could ambush at any time and throw off the mission. This is what it means to be watchful as we pray with diligence. And I want you to hear these words from J.C. Ryle as he talks about why being watchful in prayer is so important. Listen to what he says here. We may be sure that men fall in private. Now listen to this, men and, and our ladies. That men and women fall in private long before they fall in public. They are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Like Peter, they first disregard the Lord's warning to watch and pray. And then like Peter, their strength is gone. And in the hour of temptation, they deny their Lord. And I just got this sneaky suspicion that for a lot of us, we have fallen asleep in our praying. I just want you to hear that that goes somewhere. I mean, that has an end game associated with it. That we're to be watchful in the way we pray. And the last one, we'll close with this. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. And then he uses this last phrase, with thanksgiving. And I love what this phrase does to us, just to kind of balance this whole thing out. When, when you think of being steadfast, when you think of being watchful, alert, I mean, th- those, those words instantly bring imagery of tension, of suspense, of you need to be aware because something's about to happen, right? I mean, that's what steadfast and that's what watchfulness brings about. But now think about, think about what think, like praying with, with a thankful heart brings up. Kind of the imagery associated with it. It means that there's a relaxed spirit. That there's a joyful spirit. That it's not just this adrenaline, uh, adrenaline heart pumping artery about to blow moments for us, but that we have like a real calm and collected confidence in, in God. And let me tell you, you have every reason to be thankful in the midst of the mission. Here's why. 
your God that you're praying to is sovereign. That means the mission of God is not left to luck. That the mission of God is under the complete control of a sovereign God who has planned every move forward and orchestrated every advancement of the gospel. So listen to what this means for you. God gets the burden of mission, you get the blessing. So we can have confidence, we can pray thankfully as we know we're praying to a God that's sovereign. And not only is he sovereign, but he is sovereign and he's good. He loves to redeem and rescue men and women. He's a missionary God. He goes after them. He ambushes them. He tracks them down and he saves them. He did it to you, right? I mean, think about that. He did it to you. He did it to Paul, like the renegade that you see killing Christians in the New Testament that ended up writing the book of Colossians that we're reading now and a big portion of the New Testament. And we can have great confidence that he can do it for your hard-hearted family member, your your hard-hearted neighbor, your hard-hearted coworker, because we've got a good and gracious and sovereign king. Amen? So as we approach and look toward 2011, my hope for the Stonegate family is that the gospel would so form us that it would make us missionaries. And the gospel would be this food and this fuel that would, that would motivate and, and propel us on the mission of God. And that as we live on the mission of God this year, that we will pray for the mission for open opportunities, for for ways the gospel can expand. And we would do that with diligence. We would do that with alertness. And we would do that with thankfulness, knowing that we've got a sovereign God and a good God that we're praying to. May it be for us. Let's pray. Okay, so here's here's how I want to end today with you. Is I want to give you a few minutes before we stand and sing. I want to give you a few minutes to think about a couple of things with us. In 2011, we want you to, we want us, we want the Stonegate family to become a go and tell people. We don't want to sit on the gospel. We want to take the gospel and be sent with it. And so maybe it's just the first steps into this. I want to really press on you to start praying for maybe two, three, four people that you want to actively be praying for in 2011. That that you're going to start praying for for God to open opportunities. That that you're going to be praying that God would give you clarity as you try to to, to declare the mystery of the gospel. So maybe that you'd start praying for these two or three people. Like who, who would they be for you? Maybe you can start thinking through neighbors, coworkers, friends. Maybe it's people on your son or daughter's soccer team, baseball team. But but who is it that you want to start passionately and watchfully and diligently and thankfully praying for? And that we want to press you. We're going to talk about this all year. We want to make sure we are playing our role in in helping move you to mission. And we want you to invite those people into your life, into your group of people, into your home group's life, where they get to know your people, you know their people. And that we're actively demonstrating the gospel to them and declaring it. And that, oh, maybe by the end of 2011, that that you would have this joyful experience of watching men and women redeemed by Jesus through your life and through your lips. Wouldn't that be beautiful for you? 
Wouldn't that be beautiful for our family here? So I want to give you just a second to pray through that, to pray over that. Like who, who would those people be? Let me pray that God would give you just a great burden for them. Like you couldn't escape them. God, this is that, just kind of that weird moment for a preacher and a pastor where you've said all you can say and and there's just an active dependence upon you to drive these things into each of our hearts. And so God, I pray that you would send the gospel into the cracks and crevices. God, that you would form us into missionaries. God, that you would fuel us for the mission. God, I pray that you would do that. God, I pray that you would not let us escape that, that you would hunt us down until we get there. God, that you would not let us sit comfortably gorging at the buffet. But God, that you would send us. God, that we would live as sent people. So God, I pray that you would do that for us. God, I pray for grace. God, I know that it takes a massive amount of grace to do that. So God, we pray that for our Stonegate family. God, that you would set us on a trajectory of maybe in 10 years from now, that we would get to look around at just a wake of people who have been impacted, who you have used this this group of men and women to save, to redeem, to rescue. That that you have used this group of people to move from a, a blindness to the beauty of Christ to light that has shined in their hearts, the blinders coming off to where they're no longer running away from it, but they're running to God, to you as sons and daughters. God, I pray for that. God, may it be, may it be, we're expectant, we're hopeful, we're thankful. It's in your good and gracious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.